0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program posting july eighth, twenty sixteen, we talk with Columbia University Russian expert Robert Legvold about return to cold war his latest book, and the subject of a recent WPJ talking policy feature. You're listening to World Policy on Air.
1: Now this. This Cold War between the United States and Russia, between Russia and the West, does not engulf or encompass the entire international system the way the original Cold War did. The original Cold War was the international system in a bipolar world. It's no longer driven by the same kind of basic ideological animus that represents competition between two economic and political systems as before. It's no longer, at least not to this point, under the shadow of nuclear Armageddon, which was
0: fundamental to the original Cold War. That's what the new Cold War is not, according to Columbia University Russian expert Robert Legvold, appearing at a recent session of the Carnegie Council for Ethics and in International Affairs. What it is, and how like the original it might ultimately be resolved, is the subject of Legvold's new book, Return to Cold War, from Polity Publishers, a must-read according to former Senator Sam Nunn, co-chair of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. And Professor Legvold also discussed it in a recent talking policy feature for the World Policy Blog. But that was before the United Kingdom's traumatic vote in favor of leaving the European Union, which has major implications for international security, as well as the world's ever more complex economy. So to update the issue post-Brexit, I discussed it with Professor Legvold more recently for this podcast. Robert Legvold, welcome to World Policy On Air.
1: Good to be with you.
0: The central argument of your book is that U.S.-Russian relations have returned to a state of Cold War. How does the current situation differ from the ups and downs that characterize the relationship from the fall of the Soviet Union up until the crisis in Ukraine
1: well first of all it is fundamentally different from the original cold war so i don't want to be misunderstood on that score uh but it is also uh very different from what uh, we experienced and certainly what we hoped for at the end of the cold war in the 1990s and through uh, much of the first decade of the new century uh And the reason I call it a new Cold War is because where we have fallen since the Ukrainian crisis in Russia-West, particularly U.S.-Russia relationship, is qualitatively different from that earlier period. The earlier post-Cold War period (coughs) was marked by what I call a useful ambiguity. That is, neither Moscow nor Washington nor the capitals in Europe were quite sure whether the other side was friend or foe, but uh, left to hope that it was mostly friend, we'd be able to do business, and so on. That's gone. And now each sees the other side as an adversary. The relationship is essentially and fundamentally estranged. And in order to capture that qualitative difference now in the context of the Ukrainian crisis and after with what was before, uh, I do call it New Cold War, because although fundamentally different from the original Cold War, it does have – at least five characteristics that do uh... that do reflect or that do uh, imitate what we saw in the original cold war alas the early years of the original cold war
0: what are those five
1: well the first is that each side just as then blames the other entirely for what's happened there's no introspection how we got here together over the twenty-year period after the cold war Moreover, not only do we blame the other side exclusively for what's happened, it's the reason we blame the other side. It's in the nature of the other side, its system, its character, its purpose. Uh, and I call it uh, seeing the essence of the problem as in the essence of the other side rather than, as I've said, thinking about the interaction. Secondly, Just as in that earlier period, say 1948 after the Berlin blockade until Stalin's death in 1953 and a little later than that, each side views the problem as not merely a conflict of interests, but indeed of deep purpose. And that makes it very difficult to imagine that we can find any kind of meaningful common ground. Uh, And third, the assumption, just as before, is that none of this is going to change anytime soon, and it won't, because it won't change until there is some fundamental change in the character of the other side, not just its foreign policy, but in the very nature of the politics that drives its foreign policy. And then there are two other Uh, two other characteristics that are like the earlier period, but that gives you an idea of why I think it's justified for all the fundamental differences in calling this qualitative change a new Cold War.
0: The book addresses a number of initially promising efforts to increase cooperation and develop trust that ultimately fail to resolve the underlying problems. Reminds us of a few, and tell us how you think efforts from either side to engage diplomatically can lead to lasting structural change.
1: Well, First of all, again, part of what is very different in this qualitatively new phase is that no longer are we likely to experience, uh, as we did in the 90s and for a good deal of the first decade of the 20th century, ups and downs. That is, moments of real progress and expectation uh, succeeded by uh, decline and increased tensions and, uh, and so on. I call it um, or m- might be thought of as the ups and downs of the relationship that I think is not going to be uh, that 's not going to be possible in the near term, but in terms of uh, and therefore one of the difficult questions uh, analytical questions in the '90s and early and one that we didn 't really face is why why the ups and downs why didn 't the relationship uh, gain traction and build cumulatively upward from moments of of progress, as in the early phase of the Clinton administration, uh, and then uh, in the in the uh, Bush period after 9/11, when the Russians uh, were very cooperative, and then again when the reset of the Obama administration uh, took hold, but each time succeeded by a decline in relations. I believe that <clears throat> the underlying problem was twofold. First of all. I think we fail to recognize the small but malignant seeds that were there from the beginning, in terms of potential Russian suspicion about what the West was doing in the post-Soviet space, even though it wasn't uh, even though it wasn't uh, sharp as it would become. Uh, and uh, Russian concern about uh, U.S. unilateralism in the Balkans in the 1990s and dealing with Milosevic's Serbia, the Bosnian crisis, and so on. Those seeds would grow, I call them malignant seeds, those seeds would grow in each subsequent period. Instead, we focused on the positive side of the ups and downs, and we tended to dismiss what was growing uh, at this deeper level, and didn't really work that problem on either side. I think we thought that yes, ups and downs, but sooner or later we'll we'll begin making uh, uh, substantial progress, and it will begin uh, assuming a kind of momentum. It never did. But the second thing were the <clears throat> the second thing was the the coarse substantive issues. Uh, the enlargement of NATO was a turning point in the 1990s. And from my point of view, it's not so much the way those who have argued both sides of it uh, are one or the other is right or wrong, those that argued against it uh, people like George Kennan and even paul nitz 's strange bedfellows in this case believed that it would create a very difficult relationship with Russia once Russia was back on its fi- feet. Uh, it was a mistake in that context of moving russia, moving the, moving the NATO alliance into that area. Those on the other side said that no this isn 't really about russia it 's not directed against russia it 's designed to deal with the German Polish historic problem by uh, bringing them together in an alliance. It's intended to um, uh, it is intended to prevent the emergence of a security vacuum in Central Europe, a gray zone in European security. And third, it would reinforce what also the EU is trying to do, and that is to encourage these uh, former Soviet uh, uh, satellites to move in the direction of democracy and markets and so on. Uh, and at one level both sides were right. But what we were not doing in that circumstance, and it parallels not dealing with what I call these malignant seeds, was building what we said we wanted to build in the Charter of Paris for New Europe in 1990. And we'd continue to say that at heads of states meeting of the OSCE for the next uh, 15 years, indeed down to 2010. And that is an inclusive Euro-Atlantic security community that stretched from Vancouver to Vladivostok, meaning a European security system that would not simply be transatlantic and including now some of the East Europeans, but excluding the rest of the post-Soviet region and Russia, but that would include those areas and that would have a common agenda. We all said, national leaders said, we were committed to that. We never worked that problem very hard. It was, in some cases, uh, too hard especially at a time when uh, we were beginning to uh, avert our attention from Russia, now weak and uh, no longer the preoccupation that it had been before. That was very short-sighted. On the Russian side, the fundamental mistake was they ignored what would be the consequences of the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Pact breaking apart and the hostility, the residual hostility that would be there among those states, former Warsaw Pact so-called allies, former Soviet republics, now independent states. And Russia thought they could not only merely ignore them and focus on the, the U.S. and the West and alternative states, but indeed deal with them in a harsh fashion, more sticks than carrots. They really should, from the beginning, have said, how could we create a relationship with these now new neighbors that would be more constructive, where they would not be uh, protagonists and uh, and violently eager to join nato and uh, and align against Russia and so on, so Russia never worked the problem that it should have right from the start.,
0: even if some critics disagree with your argument that u s Russian relations are again in a cold war, you also make the point that calling the current status a return to Cold war might make both sides weigh the full consequences of the deterioration Uh, beyond slightly terrifying terminology what else will it take for both countries to recognize the extent of the dangers you present and prioritize this relationship and perhaps change their approach
1: I don't know and that's one of the things that concerns me because I think right now perspectives in all countries certainly in Russia and in the United States is much too narrow much too myopic we're thinking about Next week and next month and uh, a presidential election in this country, the Russians are already gearing up for presidential election in 1918 and parliamentary elections this fall and playing politics in a very narrow sense without thinking about the large issues that require east-west cooperation, U.S.-Russian cooperations. They include what I believe is an increasingly complex and dangerous multipolar nuclear world. We've been focusing on nonproliferation, the Irans, the North Koreas, but we've lost sight of some very disturbing trends that are underway among the nine countries that have nuclear weapons. And not only are the United States and Russia two countries with 92% of those weapons, not uh, ex- exercising leadership in dealing with these new challenges, they are essentially presiding over the, the, uh, uh, the collapse or the disintegration of the rather patchwork arms control regime that we did build, both conventional and strategic arms, over the last 40 years. The only thing we have left is the new START agreement. That expires in 2021. And there has been no unlike in the past with agreements, there has been no willingness or attempt on the part of Washington or Moscow to begin negotiating what follows after that. so uh, not only are we not meeting a challenge, we are weakening what little what little guarantees or little what few safeguards that we had in dealing with the past. The same thing is true on other large issues, like the implications of climate change, where Russia the United States are two of the four world's largest greenhouse gas emitters, the United States, China, and Russia are going to have to take a lead if we're going to make progress in this area. And we already know, I live in Boston, the Boston Globe, a week ago said by the end of the century, in a realistic worst-case analysis, 30% of my city will be underwater that's going to produce resource conflicts including migration flows it'll be far worse than anything we've seen out of the syrian crisis and we need u s china russian leadership not the least russia because the u s and russia role comes together in the Arctic, which also will be fundamentally important, not only in terms of climate change and environment generally, but in terms of uh, energy relations, because this is the new great frontier in that area. And above all else, if you think about what will be the firebox of tension and difficulty in the future, it will be the Eurasian core and everything around it, the concentric circles around it. We've seen it with instability in the post-Soviet region. We have it in the Ukraine crisis, we have it to the south in Afghanistan and Iran we have it in uh, now Syria and the Middle East, we have it potentially in the Far East and the Korean Peninsula and so on, and if any country is important to us in dealing with that, if you will, firebox or core or crucible of instability in the Euro-Asian core, it is Russia, and we need U.S.-Russian cooperation in dealing with these issues, and I could go on all of that All of that is simply uh, missing from the perspective of any significant voice, including national leaders, never mind those that would be national leaders in the U.S. presidential election.
0: Uh, Something you brought up a number of times in the book was the potential need for a figure like Mikhail Gorbachev, who would take a major first step and then for the other side to reciprocate. How important is the personality of the leader? How much of of the current problem is really Putin himself?
1: Well, first of all, in extending the point I was just making, among the sad, virtually tragic aspects of the current situation, that is, where neither side has much perspective, much willingness to think about the large challenges that are being neglected that require U.S.-Russia cooperation, uh, there is also simply no Gorbachev, uh, and there won't be one soon, that is, somebody who's willing to make fundamental changes uh, above all, in his own country's approach and policy, but on the question of the importance of vladimir putin uh, i think I think his personality is important I think he, as a person, is very important because of his centrality in a system that's highly personalized uh, and in terms of key decisions centralized but it there is a question crudely framed uh, within um, the community of people who follow Russia of how much uh, Putin is uh, Russia and how much of Russia is Putin <laughs> and I think it's a mix between the two that is Putin and the system that he presides over is uh, is much more elaborate than his person alone so to put it another and more concrete way if for some reason, he disappeared from the scene tomorrow. Russia's behavior, approach to the outside world, would not change very much at all, except perhaps for the worst, as other leaders that are still more crudely nationalistic emerged. But his approach at this point, uh, and and that of his government, that is the key advisors around him who are very much a part of the same uh... i think is not helping the situation it makes it very difficult to move forward does it make it impossible because i would go back a step and say that in washington and i think in some of the european capitals the assumption is that not much can be done with russia under putin uh... that basically their view of the west and the united states and its policy is incorrigible there's very little uh... that uh, very little responsibility i said the lack of introspection on both sides there's very little that washington has done and therefore that washington could do uh... to re-engage and move in a more constructive uh... direction in fact the view is that putin has really revealed what russia is and what his leadership is in the context of the ukrainian crisis whatever may have been our hopes before that So the view of it, uh, it's, uh, first of all, I think he is not terribly constructive, but we make it much worse by assuming that that's the way it is, nothing will change until he's gone and something fundamentally is altered on the Russian side. I don't believe that. I believe it would be very difficult for us, and I'm very pessimistic that the effort will even be made. I think it will be very difficult to begin moving out of this new Cold War. But the original Cold War eventually evolved through a series of phases. It lasted at least nearly 40 years, maybe longer if you believe it didn't end until the Soviet Union collapsed. I think the deterioration now, no longer the ups and downs, the phasing of before a uh, new Cold War, will also go through evolution an evolutionary phase, and I think the early phases will be a very cautious, partial re still driven by fundamental suspicion of each side, still primarily uh, characterizing a, pol- a policy characterized by treating the other as more adversary than, than potentially cooperative partner. But if events don't uh, work against us at every turn, as they have in the last several years, say there is the opportunity uh, for progress in U.S.-Russia cooperation in addressing the Syrian war or addressing ISIL, uh, or the lid doesn't blow off in ukraine even though i don't believe there's going to be a political settlement of donbass it is important to keep the lid on uh, of the violence in the area uh, even conceivably that the russians would decide that they were prepared to be a little more helpful in dealing with the core ukrainian economic and political crisis rather than simply uh, intensifying the white hot hostility they have between themselves and this important neighbor of theirs uh, if those things happen, small steps might begin uh, eroding the current Cold War, but I don't think it will change soon, and I don't, back to your question, expect uh, Putin to take major initiatives in moving in that direction. I think the most one can hope for is if there is some willingness to test what can be done with the Russians that that he and his colleagues respond to it, and that indeed may be one of the effects of uh, of Brexit if the Europeans, as they now face their own internal disarray and preoccupations, believe they need to re engage with Russia and try a different approach to the things that set us apart Ukraine, uh, the growing remilitarization of a central front uh, now pushed to the east in Europe. Uh, that the Russians would be responsive. Uh, I think it's a long shot, but that may be one of the effects of Brexit.
0: You talk about the importance of trust, not only between individual leaders, but between nations. What is the role of outside actors uh, in each country, media, business, intellectual figures, in helping or hindering improvement in the bilateral relationship?
1: I think that's very important because that's context, and uh, none of this happens only because uh, you have a Russian leadership under Putin and a U.S. administration under Obama and whoever else will follow. They operate in, uh, in, uh, in very elaborate, ramified environments, not just their own government with parliament and so on, but with media and even with the public. Uh, That's far more important in the U.S. than in Russia, but it's not unimportant in Russia. Uh, And some of what uh, Putin does, um, often for worse in the East-West relationship, is very much designed to appeal to Russian public, uh, at least the engaged Russian public. Uh, And the problem here, again back to why I say this qualitative change is a new Cold War, again like the Cold War, all of those critical elements media, even a good part of the expert community, parliamentarians, public figures, and leaders, policymakers in both countries are inside this Cold War and waging it rather than standing aside and thinking about its implications, what might be done in order to change direction. So all of that is very important. There's virtually nothing that resists the headwind, and there's virtually no force that's beginning Uh, to, to, with the exception of a few relatively weak voices in both countries. Uh, who are making an argument that um, that we're headed in the wrong direction we need to deal with issues that are on the agenda we can't ignore ukraine we can't ignore syria we can't ignore the trouble around the intermediate nuclear force agreement the inf agreement the other things that are at the heart of issues today they have to be dealt with but we need to think about how we deal with those issues that don't that don't destroy the longer Term relationship that each side should want to have with one another, say seven, eight, nine, ten years down the road, particularly in the context of the large problems and challenges that I mentioned. Uh, so yes, uh, right now it's not a good time in terms of all of the elements that you point to.
0: Let's go back a little bit to to Syria and the mutual interest in defeating the so called Islamic state as a potential starting point for at least some of those small efforts that you mentioned. Have the events and negotiations of the past several months changed the calculus at all or indicated any change in the relationship?
1: It's been back and forth. I think people, the skeptics, uh, including skeptics within the Obama administration and perhaps Uh, on the Russian side within the elite, we're surprised by the progress that we made last fall when Kerry and Lavrov in the Vienna negotiations were able to reach agreement on a framework for what now are the proximity talks in Geneva that would bring representatives of the opposition together with representatives of the Syrian government, the Assad government, to talk about these issues on t- in in terms of the conflict or the com- the uh, struggle against ISIS uh, or the Islamic state uh, we did reach an agreement once the Russians intervened militarily last September late last September uh, to um, to avoid incidents between our two air forces operating in Syria so called deconfliction agreement but it has been hot and cold uh uh, we then had to go to a second phase of, of between the United States and Russia, which now together were assuming a leadership in the diplomacy of this. Russia quite content that it was again seen as a co-equal of the United States as an important diplomatic figure in dealing with this issue, I think it was one of their primary objectives in the military intervention. Uh, they needed an agreement. They first tried in early February that failed. They got an agreement February uh, 12th on a ceasefire, partial ceasefire, in the Syrian war. And the Syrian war, progress on that, I think, is a prerequisite for the second war, the war against cooperation and the war against ISIS. Uh, That was also to include um, access for delivering humanitarian assistance to the, the areas that had been besieged. Uh, and were being starved, as well as an agreement to try to, on on the part of Washington and Moscow, push the proximity talks forward in Geneva. Um, By late spring, the Obama administration, and I think it's still where they are, are very discontent with, way in which they see the Russians failing to do their part uh, in in implementing the February 12th agreement. There's been a lot of back and forth over the Russians continuing to, with their air power, back the Syrians as they attack portions of the opposition that we support. Uh, We've been arguing that the Russians haven't done what was necessary to allow humanitarian assistance through. That may have improved a little bit in the last several weeks, and above all else, we've said. they have put no pressure on Assad to be more forthcoming in Geneva. Here I think a tail is wagging a dog because I think essentially what Assad is doing, having succeeded militarily with Russian help, is... uh, is stiffing them, and uh, he's come back to saying, I'm going to now win this war, which the Russians from the beginning have said, that's not our position. We're in this in order to achieve some kind of diplomatic outcome, one that protects a minority Alawite regime, maybe without Assad. But nonetheless, we're not in this in order to fight a war to victory, and Assad has, I think, more or less trapped them into that position at the moment. But that obviously doesn't work in the U.S.-Russia. Uh, relationship, so it hasn't really it hasn't really gathered momentum. But it but it uh, from the beginning it accomplished more than I think people thought, and it's not dead yet. Uh, the administration hasn't thrown it over or said no. The Russians are completely at fault, and we give up on it, and we're going to let the Saudis do whatever they want to do in this war. So we'll see. But it is again, it's a sign that. Uh, Neither side is, uh, is trying hard to use this as a basis for improving the general context. That's not happening.
0: Finally, but beyond what you've already said, how do you think Brexit will affect the new Cold War? Will it tempt Putin to exploit the new instability? Will it seriously undermine the U.K.'s role in NATO and other U.S. military arrangements? Will it reduce the amount of shared intelligence on which Washington policy depends?
1: Good question. I don't know the answer. Uh, History is flipping a coin. One side is negative in terms of the answer to your question. The other side may be a little more positive, and I'm not sure how it's going to land. Uh, I think the odds that it it may land with the negative side up, and that would be on the Russian side to arouse their instincts to react unconstructively, to assume that Brexit is in their interest because it removes uh, Britain, the staunchest uh, supporter of sanctions against Russia from the EU, maybe weakening, therefore, the sanctions regime, uh, uh, weakening uh, the U.S. uh, relationship with the EU, where it counted on Britain to be an important voice in the U.S.-West European relationship. perhaps uh, increasing uh, disorder within the European Union and increasing Russia's interest in the hard right, uh, Marine Le Pen and uh, and Garrett Wilders and their counterparts in the European countries and what may happen along the line and, and all the other things that are in your list of, uh, of, of what would be essentially negative. Uh, and on the western side, it may be that this Warsaw NATO summit that's coming up will now be even harder in terms of uh, the military response to what is seen as the new Russian security challenge in Central Europe uh, in order to demonstrate that the transatlantic alliance and European cohesion is strong, notwithstanding Brexit and what it does to the EU. Uh, It probably at the outset means the United States will insist even more On the Europeans holding the line on sanctions, which they will this week and for this next uh, tranche, for this next uh, period of sanctions in Europe. But my own view on that on that score, parenthetically, is that the pressures in Europe to lift sanctions will be very intense by fall and the early part of next year. And I've been arguing that the United States, Germany, Europe should begin rethinking conditionality. On sanctions, not simply wait for the moment when when it begins falling apart, uh, and countries begin lifting sanctions, thinking about things Russia could do that would be constructive in the Ukrainian context and not only around Minsk II, in turn for a process by which the sanctions, particularly sect- sectoral sanctions, are lifted. Uh, Brexit may make it more difficult to come to that conclusion, but if the longer odds are, the coin lands on the positive side up. It could be, as I said earlier, that Europe will say because there is some sentiment. Uh, this is this is clearly the desire of the German foreign minister Steinmeier. It's the rumblings within the uh, Assemblee Nationale of France. It is within portions of the Italian government, regional and otherwise, that Europe needs to re-engage Russia on a much more substantial basis. Uh, begin thinking of ways and a basis by which they can move away from sanctions. I think that also means, although I don't believe the Europeans, even those that would argue for this course, have thought through the specifics, of how they would try a a somewhat different approach to the Ukrainian problem between Russia and the West that has to be addressed Uh, and some of the other issues that remain including energy oil and gas when it comes to the EU and Russia and so on Uh, but I think it's possible that there will be if the coin lands with the positive side up some greater positive movement in that direction but coming back to your original question right now I certainly wouldn't pace Uh, wager any of my retirement account on knowing what the effect of Brexit is going to be.
0: (laughs) Professor Legvold, thank you. You're welcome. Robert Legvold is Marshall D. Shulman, Professor Emeritus in the Department of Political Science at Columbia University. His recent book is Return to Cold War from Polity Publishers, which he also discussed in a June 17th talking policy feature for the World Policy Blog. Featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about a black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai, about public-private collaboration for affordable urban housing, at least on paper, and about honor killings in Pakistan. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.